This is normally the place in the teaching time where I say, now turn in your Bibles to such and such a passage. But we're going to be looking at the life of Peter this morning. Chip mentioned that earlier. Uh, we're, we're spending the summer looking at different folks that encountered Jesus in the Gospels. This morning, we're going to look at probably the most famous disciple of Jesus. Peter was kind of on the, the inside. There were Peter, James, and John. Uh, wherever Jesus went, if, if he left some of the disciples behind, but he took one or two with him, like the, the transfiguration would be a good example, Peter was right there. Uh, Peter was on the inside with Jesus. And uh, we're going to look at his life because we meet Peter the day he meets Jesus. And we stay with Peter all the way through his two epistles, which are almost at the very end of his life. And what we can track with Peter that we can't necessarily do with other folks is that journey of discipleship. So let me put it in the form of a question. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a disciple this morning, what are your goals for growing in your faith? If you were to look at your life five years from now or 10 years from now, what would you hope would be true about who you are as a disciple of Jesus. Our leadership team at Green Tree is actually going through a process of defining the vision of Green Tree because we're asking that question. What do, what do the next five to 10 years look like for our congregation? We do this in our lives in a lot of different ways. You have educational goals. You have career goals. You have, you have goals for your family. If you're here this morning with your mom or dad and you're, you're under 18 years of age, if you ask them when you get home, what are your goals for me in my life, they won't have trouble telling you. <laughs> they have those right on the tip of their tongue. Sometimes they agree and sometimes they disagree, but they have a, a vision. They have a notion for that. Do we think that way when it comes to discipleship? Do we think about growing in our faith? That's what we want to consider this morning when we look at the life of Peter. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and for your mercy. Father, we thank you for your compassion of which we have sung, uh, that you have prepared a place for us, that you love us. You love us with, a, with an undying, uninhibited, reckless love that, that will knock down any barrier to capture our hearts and to bring us to yourself. Father, we are recipients of grace. We're not here because we're good. We're not here because we deserve your favor. We're here because we are astonished that you would be merciful to sinners like us. So, Father, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to learn. Not what I have to say, Lord. What I have to say isn't important. But what you say, your eternal word, the truth of your scriptures, can be transformative in our hearts and our minds. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, you would open us to your teaching. Uh, where we need correction, we pray for correction. Where we need comfort, we pray for comfort. Lord, whatever work you want to do in our hearts, we, we just bring ourselves before you and ask that that would be done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the journey of discipleship is a long trek for most of us uh, and following Jesus as he leads and as he transforms us. Now, the idea of, of maturing, of growing, uh, is common to us. If you uh, look at the next image on the screen, you know, you see, you know, there we are being born, and then we, we kind of grow up, and, and our fashions change, and our understanding change, and the, the folks at the far end there have the kind of the white hair of wisdom, so to speak. So the notion of growth is, is very common to us. There's nothing surprising here, but we tend to not necessarily apply that 
when it comes to the journey of discipleship. For, for a lot of us, we're just kind of hanging on and, and hoping that it works out. For others of us, we've perhaps been a disciple a long, long time, and we've fallen into the notion of thinking, well, it just comes naturally to me. Of course I love Jesus. Of course I'm a disciple of Jesus. And we don't really spend time exploring what it means to be on this journey. Uh, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scare you, but I'm, gonna, I'm warning you before I scare you. I have seven observations about discipleship this morning. So you're like, wait a minute, the World Cup women starts in one minute, and we got to record it. we got to get home. I talked to a couple of middle school girls this morning who are soccer players. They uh, promised me the U.S. was going to win three to nothing, so we don't need to be in that big of a hurry. But I'm going to fly through these seven observations. We're not going to dig into any one of them. We want to mention that, but I, but I want you to listen to them with the lens of your own life if you're a disciple of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, you're maybe a little skeptical or you're curious, maybe friends brought you to church, you're wondering about it. If you want to know what the life of a disciple is like, you're going to get a very good glimpse of it in the life of Peter. And we should see ourselves in many ways in this reflection. So let's dive right in. Mark chapter 1 is the, where it's recorded the day that Peter meets Jesus. And we read these words. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon. By the way, that was his original name. He's going to become Peter. Simon and Andrew, his brother, uh, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Uh, obviously, I've underlined it, but I want you to see that last sentence there. There's an initial enthusiasm. Now, Jesus was not a stranger to Peter in that Peter had heard about Jesus. Jesus has been around for a while. His name is beginning to become known, uh, certainly in and around the Sea of Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel. Uh, Jesus is, is gaining a reputation. And if, if nothing else, Peter is highly intrigued by this one who invites him to come and follow. But notice how much planning Peter puts into the process. Notice how Peter calls his family together and says, what do you think? Should I follow him? Should I not follow him? Notice how Peter thinks out and goes, you know, this could end really well. He could be the Messiah or it can end tragically. I might want to think about this. Peter doesn't even flip a coin. He immediately follows after Jesus. There's an enthusiasm that Jesus exhibits in, in drawing us to himself that is contagious. And Peter sees Jesus and he hears the invitation and he throws the nets down and he left the fish, whatever he caught, in the boat and he and Andrew just take off and follow Jesus. Do you remember that enthusiasm in your life when you first became a Christian? Do you remember the excitement you had if you're a believer here this morning, whether you've been a believer for 40 years or four weeks? Do you remember that initial, oh my goodness, I want to follow Jesus. I came to Christ at a very young age. I was about five or six years old when I became a Christian. My entire neighborhood was evangelized by me by the time I was eight years old. <laughs> they didn't all put their faith in Jesus, but I grew up in a neighborhood of boys. They were like my sister and maybe one or two other girls. And then there were like 15 guys within a couple years. I mean, it was a great neighborhood to grow up in, but I told every one of those guys about Jesus. There was just this enthusiasm in my heart. I just couldn't wait to tell somebody about the grace of God. And Peter has this initial enthusiasm. He just, he just dives in. He, he's, not, he didn't, he, he's in midair when the thought crosses his mind. I wonder how deep the pool is. He's just jumping in. But not only does he have an initial enthusiasm, but he tends to have an impulsive faith. 
And, and, and I, there were a lot of passages I could have picked, but I picked Matthew 16 for this. Jesus talking to his disciples, and he asked them a question. It comes to the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's Jesus' name for himself. So Jesus said, who do people say that I am? And collectively, the disciples kind of put their heads together, and somebody says John the Baptist, others Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then they stop. And Jesus says, well, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Again, Peter doesn't ask anybody else's opinion. It's been a group exercise up to this point. Andrew answers a little bit, and Thomas probably throws one in, and the other James probably answers, and they kind of collectively chat. But then when Jesus looks at the 12, Peter doesn't say, what does everybody think? What's your guys' opinion? He says, you're the Christ. Do you hear the impulsiveness in that? Do you hear just the reckless abandon of Peter? That part of discipleship is a reckless abandon in devotion to Christ. And I think sometimes perhaps we'd lose that in our long journey in following Jesus. We typically say impulsiveness is a bad thing. It's a negative thing. It can lead to a lot of, a lot of unnecessary risk. But it's almost as if Peter can't help himself. His faith demands that he shout it out. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet Peter can take that impulsiveness a bit too far as I believe you and I can as well. And that's my third observation here, is that, that Peter uh, springboards from this statement uh, almost immediately into an unwarranted self-confidence. In other words, he has, he has, he's self-confident, but he has no reason to be. So the very next verses read this. From the time Jesus began, that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned, him and, said, uh, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, Peter dives right in. But now, Peter is going to teach Jesus. (laughs) Think about that for just a second. So I've got my kind of my arrogant, you know, 21st century Peter. So so Peter, first of all, he says, hey, Jesus, come here, come over here, right? So saying that to Jesus is problematic to start with, but Jesus is patient with him. And so Peter goes, you know, Jesus, we got to talk. you're, you're, you're blowing the morale thing, and, and it, you, you got to start being more positive. Thomas is doubting everything you say. <laughs> you know, if you don't keep an eye on Judas, who knows what's going to happen with him? You just got and, and Peter begins to lecture the Lord Jesus. He's got a confidence that's, that's very misplaced. But isn't that true for you and me sometimes? We, we forget that we belong to Jesus. We forget that we're followers of Jesus. We don't dictate to him. We don't give Jesus instructions. We don't say to Jesus, Jesus, if I do this, then you'll do that, right? What we say to Jesus is, you are Lord, and you are King, and you're my Lord, and you're my King, and I am following you. 
but we tend to be like Peter. We tend to get this confidence and, and praise God that Jesus was kind enough to tell Peter what the truth really was and to help Peter understand that, that he had fallen into a spiritual trap and if he wasn't careful, it would get much worse in his life. Is there any unwarranted confidence in your life or mine that we're probably like Peter, we're probably on that, that journey of discipleship? But not only does Peter sometimes get it wrong and having self-confidence, but when he puts forth the effort, sometimes the effort is misguided. If you go to John chapter 18, Jesus is in the last night before he goes to the cross. And they've celebrated uh, Passover, what we now call the Lord's Supper. And they've gone out into the garden and, and Jesus has been praying all night. And now it's early, 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 maybe three or four o'clock in the morning, the next morning. And Judas shows up with the guys to arrest Jesus. And Peter and the other 11 are standing right there next to Jesus when this scene transpires. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? Peter exerts a tremendous amount of effort to save Jesus. Peter is going to defend Jesus. Peter, Peter's already said to Jesus, if everybody else runs away, don't worry, I'll be by your side. And Jesus had to say to Peter, Peter, before the sun comes up tomorrow morning, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. But in this moment, Peter, whether he's amped up because he had lack of sleep, uh, whether he's on edge because of everything that's happened the last week, he draws a sword and he's ready to go to battle for Jesus. Again, I think that describes us, our journey to disciples at times. We're ready to get into the fight. We're ready to jump in and to uh, defend Jesus and to make sure that, that, that the faith is made known to others regardless of the cost. But sometimes it's extraordinarily misguided. When I think about my younger years as a Christian, I think about my late teens and my early 20s, and I think about the late 1970s and the early 1980s, there was a change that was taking place in the cultural landscape of the United States when it came to human sexuality. That change has now become full-blown in, in this generation, and we, and we see the enormity of the change that's taken place. But the question that I ask when I look back is, how did the church respond to that changing time? Did we humbly engage in a conversation with folks? Could Christians be found in the AIDS wards where people were dying by the dozens, sharing the gospel and the love and the compassion of Jesus? Not very often. We put a lot of energy forward. We exerted a lot of effort to make sure people knew that this changing sexuality was wrong and we were right. Now, don't hear me say that we ought not defend biblical morality. We absolutely should defend biblical morality, but part of morality is kindness. Part of morality is graciousness. You are not a moral person if you are judgmental and arrogant and self-righteous. That is anathema. That is a sin, and it is awful in the sight of God. So lest we say, well, their sin was greater than ours and we had a right to, to judge them, we need to look carefully in the mirror of discipleship and understand that effort does not equate a right heart. And Peter's heart was in the wrong place, even though he exerted a wonderful effort. Every disciple of Jesus, I'm confident, does this from time to time. 
I see places in my life where I've put forth an effort and I'm sure I'm following Jesus and I step back and I look at it and I go, that doesn't look at all like the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I take encouragement from the fact that here's Peter, three and a half years with Jesus, and, he, and, he, and he's still struggling. Because as I look at my time with Jesus, if you want to know how I would describe my discipleship, I would say it, it's a struggle. It's growing. I, I think I'm following Jesus a little more faithfully than I was before. But the challenge is there before me every day to conform my life to the image of Jesus. And sometimes my efforts are terribly misguided. Fifthly, moving right along. Fifthly, Peter dealt with fear. Part of being a disciple is dealing with fear. In uh, the same passage in John chapter 18, a little bit further on, Jesus has been arrested. He's in the house of the high priest. He's being tried for his life. Peter's standing outside by the fire, and he's kind of standing in the back, and he's kind of probably got his cloak over his head and pulled down when somebody recognizes him. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also, are you not one of his disciples? Uh, isn't that you? But he denied it. He said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So sometimes you just got to see the humor in these things. I know you. You, you got it with a sword, right? My cousin Ed is having a hard time hearing. Actually, Jesus, actually Jesus healed that man's ear. He actually put that ear back on that man's head and healed him. Uh, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed, just flat out fear. Peter was scared. They've arrested Jesus. They're going to kill Jesus. What will they do to me? What will they do to his followers? And the, and, and the bravado had melted into worrying about his own skin. Now, you and I may not be in physical danger in our faith, but I would argue that fear is very much a part of every disciple's life. When you're in a classroom at school and someone begins to mock the scriptures, when you're at a, at a cocktail party uh, for business, when you're, you know, hanging out in the backyard on the 4th of July and somebody begins to, to talk about the silliness and the foolishness of Christianity, is there not a bit of a lump in your throat? Am I going to say something or am I not? Am I just going to keep my head down and be quiet? What's going on there? I'm being fearful. It's a very real feeling. Uh, a lot of you know that I drive Uber in my spare time just because I don't know why. I just kind of like to meet people and learn about them. And Cindy's out of town uh, this week. And so I got Friday, I'm like hanging out, nothing going, I'm going to drive Uber. The second guy I picked up an Uber, I picked him up in downtown Kirkwood. And I'm taking him into downtown St. Louis. And so we, we have about 20 minutes in the car. And, and we're almost getting onto Highway 40. So we've gotten through all the little small chit-chat. And he says, so are you retired? Do you do this all the time? And I'm like, no, I still have a full-time job. I just do it every once in a while. What do you do? I'm the pastor of Green Tree Community Church right down the street, right from where I, two blocks from where I picked you up. The next word's out of his mouth. Do you eat shellfish? <laughs> I don't know. Do you eat cow's tongue? I mean, I, where's, the, where's the conversation going? Well, I, I, I kind of thought I knew what was in the back of his head, and I said, I love sh shrimp, hate oysters, so you, you draw your own conclusions there. And then he, he picked out another verse out of context, out of the Old Testament. He said, well, do you, do you have like cloths that are sewn together with like different colors and different materials? And I said, yeah, I went through the polyester stage like everybody else. I, and, and, the, and then I said, what's your point? He said, well, you're a hypocrite. You're not, you know, that, that just shows that Christianity is foolish because of all these stupid rules in the Old Testament. None of you guys follow them anymore, but, you know, you expect everybody to believe what you believe. And that lump got in my throat. And I prayed. 
And then I said, brother, you've come to the right place. <laughs> I said, I've studied the text in ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, so let's talk about the context, okay? And he was like, okay. <laughs> and you know what I realized? He was just as scared as me. We were two people that were afraid. He doesn't, he doesn't have true meaning in his life. And, and, and he's fighting to kind of have somebody say, yeah, you're going down the right pathway. And, and I'm thinking, what's he going to think of me? Like, I'm never going to see him again, right? He's an Uber rider. If I pick him up again, the first words out of my mouth are, God is after you. Because <laughs> I got you again. And I'm driving you to Illinois until we get a conversion out of you, right? <laughs> if you're fearful as a disciple, don't be okay with it, but don't kick yourself. It's a very natural response to the struggles and the challenges. And, and go jump in line with Peter and understand. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to take it away. Ask God to give you strength. Ask God to, to help you be courageous even as you're fearful. But understand that it's a very normal sin. Now, I'm going to leave the Gospels for my last couple of observations. And I want to go first to Galatians. And I want to talk about a moment. Now, now Jesus has risen from the dead. He's ascended. Peter's been an apostle for several years. For, for more than 10 years, a decade into Peter's apostleship, he's done some really wonderful things. You can read about him in the book of Acts. And he is, he's a pillar of the church. I mean, this is, everybody kind of looks and goes, there's Peter. Let's listen to what Peter's saying because it's really important. And Paul is writing to the Galatian church about an experience he had with this pillar of the church. Now, Simon Peter, excuse me, but when Cephas, and that's another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, we had a great time. no. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Another way of saying this, he was clearly in the wrong. Why? Well, before certain men came from James, that being Jewish folks, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Frustration over a continuing sin in your life. I love that, I love that little guy. He's just got his hand on his, on his forehead. How have I done this again? You may have had that thought on your way to church this morning. I can't believe I had another Saturday night. I swore I was never going to have a Saturday night like that again, and here I, I went and did it. Some of you may have yelled at the kids on the way to church. I promised myself I would not yell at my children anymore. Frustration over ongoing sin. What was Peter's problem? Peter's problem was he was afraid of people, and that made him a bigot. He basically would hang out with the Gentiles until the Jews came around, and when the Jews came around, he was afraid of them, and so he went and so I'll just, I'll hang out with you guys, and Paul called him on it. And I, and I, I promise you, although it's not written down in scripture, but I, I, I'm old now. I had a lot of life experience. I can promise you that Peter probably at first resented what Paul said, but he knew it was true. And he was probably kicking himself all the way home going, I can't believe I'm still dealing with this. If you find yourself in that spot, don't be content, but understand it's part of the journey of discipleship. God is transforming us. You're not completely transformed yet. And if you think you are, ask your spouse, because I promise you they will tell you that you got a ways to go. Ask your kids. They will be happy to share with you where your sanctification needs to grow and get better. But but the frustration over sin should lead us to prayerful seeking out of God. It should remind us, yes, we are human, and God's doing this work, and it should bring me back to him. And then my seventh and final observation is simply to read for you some verses out of Peter's letter uh, to the, the Christians that are scattered all over the Roman Empire. Now, remember, impulsive 
rash, uh, misguided, uh, fearful Peter. And he sits down and he thinks, what do my Christian friends need to hear? What do my brothers and sisters of Christ, what would encourage them? And this is, what he, this is just a small sampling of what he wrote. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy at that the inexpressible are filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a heck of a paragraph for a fisherman, is it not? That's pretty impressive for a bigot, is it not? The Spirit of God is working a holy transformation in your life and in my life. So as much as I want to encourage all of us, don't beat yourself up too badly when you misstep. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend like you're okay when you're not. But at the same time, I want to remind you that God's moving us from that. God's growing within us a heart for him and a heart for others. And Peter has come a long, long way from the moment when he dropped those nets to the day when he sat down and wrote this letter. Church tradition tells us that shortly after Peter wrote this letter as an, as an older man, he actually gave his life for his faith. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified in Rome, that he basically died the same death that his Lord and Savior did. No longer fearful, no longer misguided, uh, maybe still perhaps a bit impulsive uh, because of what he said to his executors. I cannot be buried, or I cannot be uh, killed like Jesus on a cross. I don't deserve that. Crucify me upside down. And church tradition tells us that, that Peter went to his death proclaiming the grace and the mercy of God as a person who had been transformed by God's power. It's a long way from hasty decisions and impulsive faith but a holy transformation is not overnight. It does not happen immediately. Part of the challenges that I believe you and I faith, face in this day and age as disciples of Jesus is we live in an age of instant gratification. And we think that we should be growing at a pace that, that is not in God's time and in God's plan simply because we've mistaken information for knowledge and experience. We think because we've read something or heard something in a sermon once or twice or on the internet or in our own study that that ought to take hold in our life and immediately we ought to be more Christ-like. And that is not how God works. God, God works in the slow boil, stirring the pot, continuing to bring opportunities in our lives to trust him more and to grow in him more. You're going to experience fear. You're going to experience failure as a disciple of Jesus, but understand 
that Peter's wonderful long-term view of discipleship is yours and mine this morning. Following Jesus is all of these things we've mentioned, but it's also a developing patience. It's a strengthening of our endurance. It's a maturation of our prayer lives and our commitment to Christ and our trust in him. So allow yourself to be on the journey. Take stock. Ask brothers and sisters of Christ, where do you think I can grow? Don't be afraid of the challenges that await you. Don't assume you've arrived, yet you have not. But remind yourself that the journey of discipleship is a long trek. As you follow Jesus, where he leads you, and as he transforms you. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless your name this morning because you have not abandoned us. You have not saved us and then left us on our own. You have not offered us some advice and then gone off to be busy elsewhere. You have, you have walked in our shoes. You have lived in this world. You know what the brokenness of this world is all about, more so than us. You have given yourself for us. And now you reign and rule at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I pray for every disciple in this room. Lord, I'm sure some are frustrated. Some are tired. I'm sure some are filled with joy and thankfulness this morning and probably everything in between. Lord, strengthen your people, I pray. And Lord, for those who may be here wondering, what, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? May they see the scripture for what it is. It's not a, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a fix-everything-overnight scheme. It is a relationship with you that changes us from the inside out. Lord, help us to embrace that transformative work that you're doing in our lives. For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name.